This is alternative history. Darn it! This is alternative. <laughs> oh yeah! This is alternative history. Hey Brian, how are the podcast analytics coming along? Are we growing our listenership? Well, you know, they've increased a little bit since we started the second season, but you know, marketing something like this is kind of tough, especially when you have like little to no budget, just been kind of relying on Twitter, which is essentially feels like you're just yelling down an empty hallway sometimes. So, the board, yeah, so we haven't quite, you know, put our grips into, you know, the, uh, the, the market yet, but I think we're getting there. We're working on it. Man, it's like they don't know, they don't show, or they don't care about what's going on on this podcast. That would be the Alternative History Podcast? That is correct. This is Brian Fisher and I am Rodrigo Monaco. Thank you for joining us here on the Alternative History Podcast, where we provide a topic and we let you know if we think the topic deserved a different result, a different perception. An alternative history. Yes, and today we are talking about the 1967 movie Bonnie and Clyde. Correct. But let you guys know, we've already talked about 1967. Normally, we give you guys a rundown of the year. If you want to talk about 1967 or check out what happened that year, go ahead and check out our 13th episode, the episode on Star Trek's The City on the Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, and, and so with this episode, we're essentially going to be talking about Bonnie and Clyde, the movie, and, and the real Bonnie and Clyde, and... As far as the movie goes, we're gonna. It was nominated for an Oscar, it, but it did not win. It, so the argument, us or the thesis here is quite frankly that Bonnie and Clyde should have won Best Picture for 1967. Yes. So do we want to just run over the actual history of yes. Bonnie and Clyde real Please quick do. here? Absolutely. Well, it might not be real quick because they had a, <laughs> They did a lot in the two or so years that they went on their uh, their crime spree. So. The real Bonnie and Clyde, they were essentially star-crossed lovers like Romeo and Juliet. They they had a dangerous romance that was uh, it was going to end in tragedy, and they both knew it. Bonnie wrote a poem while she was alive that the end of line is, and it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Yep. So they had no illusions that they were going to make it out of their crime spree alive. They were part of a nationwide phenomena of notorious outlaw celebrities at the time. This we're, essentially we're we're looking at around 1932 to 1934 when they operated as criminals like a 20, together. A two-year stretch, yeah. Month stretch of During that time, there were other outlaw celebrities who were known for their fast cars, their fancy clothes, their large guns, their crimes and murders, and ultimately their deaths. And speaking of their large guns and fast cars, two things that I just wanted to mention technology-wise that benefited Bonnie and Clyde was the the V8 Ford V8 was introduced in 1932 Clyde exclusively stole that car he, he had good taste when it came to thieving cars and the Browning automatic rifle known as the BAR it was Clyde's gun of choice and it it was it was a w- extremely more powerful than any handgun that any local authorities may have had at the time he is like the original literal definition of super criminal he had a car that was faster than any cop car, yeah essentially he had yeah a gun that was better than any cop yeah. gun so yeah. like he, i mean he didn't invent the technology but he he knew how to get it he they would rob arm like military armories which is insane insane if you think about it yeah. these days you can never do it and i liked how we, we talked about this off mic but that ford v8 he just outran everybody. Like you could, yeah. they, they couldn't catch him. No. He was fast, and then you know he'd get and rid of it and get another the, one. The two things that were going in their favor were were those two uh, technological advancements, and the fact that the authorities, the police at the time, were usually local uh, locals who who had other jobs. Right. And they had to buy their own gun, which which they were usually buying a pistol, and they had to they had to provide their own car. And often not they weren't paid a whole lot. It was during the depression, so they were usually buying, you know, uh, yeah, not a Ford V8, which was new at the time. So other operators, criminal operators during the time, were John Dillinger, who was known for his uh, movie star good looks, Pretty Boy Floyd, who had an awesome nickname, Babyface Nelson, who apparently had a baby face. And Bonnie and Clyde were among the most notorious of the bunch. We know, like, historically, right, we know John Dillinger from The Lady in Red, like that that little, like, like story that he got arrested because his his woman was wearing red and that was the yeah. tip-off for the FBI. And, and I remember Babyface Nelson, here's the character in, uh, in 
Oh, brother, where art thou? Yes. He's, he's very depressed about his name. He does not like being... It's Babyface no. Nelson, right? Yeah. He does not like being called Babyface Nelson. Yeah. Uh, a side note about John Dillinger. I have a, a family connection, supposed family connection with John Dillinger. He apparently stayed at my grandpa's farm in Coleman, Wisconsin. At least that's what my grandpa says. As we'll find out, a lot of stories about these people are fabricated, made up. I have no... Re- my, I mean, my grandpa was pretty good at, at weaving tales. There told were, me once that he fought a bear. I believed him. <laughs> for a while, I'm sure. For like forever. There are references and stories of John Dillinger operating in Wisconsin, so it wouldn't yeah. be a shock. So, and I did, I did when I was in northern Wisconsin vacationing, uh, I went to Little Bohemia. And part of the allure of, of these people are the, they operated in everyday areas that, that, that anyone could go to. And, and there's a lodge in Little Bohemia that John Dillinger had a shootout with the FBI, and they basically shut the whole boarding house down and turned it into a museum to John Dillinger. All the bullet holes are still there. It's pretty crazy. And you can have lunch there, which is weird, because, you know, there is this huge, like, shootout there. I think people died, and I'm sitting there eating, you know, a BLT. So, anyhow, enough about that. We're going to get back to Bonnie and Clyde. All these criminals, they either had sex appeal or a killer nickname, they, ro- they were robbing banks at a time during the Great Depression where people were blaming banks for... Some of the people were, were blaming the banks for the Great Depression. Um, there was also, at the time, not much to entertain people. So there, there was no TV. Radio was sparse. Uh, basically, you had books or movies, both of which you had to have money to, to do. And newspaper. Yeah, and newspaper. But newspapers were cheaper than going to the movies or, or exactly. buying a book. And newspapers so, where these many of these people really got their notoriety and yeah, their fame was yeah. from, from the press. Yep. So the crime spree of Bonnie and Clyde lasted approximately two years during 1932 and 19 to 1934. They spanned several states, including their home state of Texas. They were also they also operated in Missouri, Indiana, Iowa, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Minnesota, New Mexico. And the state of Louisiana, in which that would be the last state that they, they operated were, they in. They were going all over the place, for real. Depending on, the sources differ on this, but they killed approximately 13 to 14 people. Clyde was quoted as saying that he would rather run than fight, but it was known that he would shoot his way out of a pinch if backed into a corner, and that he had no intention of going back to prison because of the horrific experience he had in Eastern Prison, which I'll get to in a second here. Like I mentioned, they operated during the Great Depression, and they, they robbed a lot of banks. But their crimes included also included car theft, kidnapping, armed robbery, and murder. When they kidnapped people, they were known to leave them in the middle of nowhere, but typically gave them clothes and money or left them with food. So in the movie, it's a pretty good example of this, but they would leave them with something. They wouldn't leave them high and dry, or essentially. Like, and and it, it essentially, they also, like, this helped them gear them to the people, to word of mouth, if you will, like, similar stories of them robbing banks and not taking people's money that were going to the bank and letting, yeah. them, letting, letting them go. So like, just like you say, like, sure, you're kidnapped and you're scared, but hey, they give you some food, they give you some money, and they're like, you're, you're regular. You're, one of the lines of the movie that I really liked was, you're not laws, you're regular people like us. So Bonnie and Clyde yeah. still always consider themselves regular people. Like, they were and they, and they criminals with a heart of gold, well, so to speak. And essentially they, they were able to, what's the term looking for? Uh, connect with with the regular people and thus became heroes through the press. Ingratiate themselves to the, to the common folk. So I want to run over some important dates for Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, just kind of progression of when they first met to, to their ultimate demise. So January 5th, 1930, Bonnie and Clyde first meet at a friend's house and they, they fall, immediately they fall in love. And for good reason, they grew up in similar places and both longed for a better life. They both grew up in poverty in the west, in the slums of West Dallas. Clyde saw what life was like in Dallas and he had little interest in working for a living. So he took up a life of crime. And when they met, Bonnie was married and her husband was in prison. And she, she wanted to be, when she was growing up, she wanted to be a singer, an actress, or, or a poet. Essentially, she wanted to be famous, which she got her wish. Not through the means that she initially wanted, but she did. And it is said that she was greatly influenced by the movies of the time. So, And you do see that in, there is a part in the actual movie, yeah, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can get to, we'll get to that in a little bit. April 1930, Clyde is sent to Eastham Prison. So this, in my research, 
So when I was looking, I always find it interesting how when we research these topics, uh, we don't really sit down and tell each other what we're going to look into. Mm-hmm. We just kind of fall into our own rabbit holes. And my rabbit hole was the, the, the real Bonnie and Clyde. So when Clyde is sent to Easton Prison in, in 1930, he was sentenced to 14 years of hard labor at the notoriously brutal Easton Prison Farm. And he was sent there for several nonviolent arrests. And when he went when he went in there, what one fellow inmate said was that Clyde changed from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake during his time in Eastham Prison. So what happened to him when he was in there was he was he was sexually assaulted by another inmate, and it's thought that he murdered this inmate in retaliation, and that's where he first committed his first homicide was in prison. He was able to do this in cahoots with another inmate who was in for a life sentence, and he took the rap. Yep. But essentially, all the inmates at the time that were with him knew that Clyde Barrow, knew that committed, Clyde the Barrow committed the crime. So he was so affected by his time there that he wanted he wanted to get out more than anything, right? Mm-hmm. And the way he did that was because the work was so brutal there. The, the guards were known to basically beat, beat, people. beat people. Apparently, they would run them over the inmates over with horses. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get out of the, under the guard's thumb and out of the work camp was to get into the infirmary. And what Clyde did was, the sources differ. One way or another, he cut off two of his toes with an axe. Whether he did it or he had another inmate do it, it it's kind of in dispute. But he, lo- he had two of his toes lopped off so he could go into the ho- prison hospital. So six days later, he gets pardoned. By his, his mom was writing letters to the governor uh, to get him pardoned. Six more days, huh? So, just like in the movie, he says he walked out of there. On, he, he 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 walked out on crutches essentially because he chopped his toes, two of his toes off, and he had a limp for the rest of his life because of that. Yeah. Okay. So after he gets out, you know, they start their their life of crime. And April thirteenth, nineteen thirty three, they were staying in Joplin, Missouri, at a hideout. Clyde's brother Buck had had joined them, and he was initially going to try to talk him out of his life of crime to talk him into surrendering. And what happened was they had been on vacation and partying and and carrying on, and the authorities thought that they were bootleggers. So they decided to, you know, approach the apartment that they were renting. Clyde and the gang came out shooting. They got in a big shootout. I think they killed several officers. At that point, Buck and his wife Blanche were part of the gang at that point because they had committed homicide or party two. And they left in haste, and what, when they left, they left behind undeveloped film. And when it got developed, there was the yeah, iconic pictures of them standing around with guns and pointing them at each other, and then the one picture of Bonnie with the cigar in her mouth. That took them from a local curiosity to nationwide outlaw celebrities because the pictures were so salacious and so over the top, and it made them seem like they, they didn't care what anyone thought about them. But in reality, they did, because Bonnie, anytime they would pick someone up, they would say, tell them that I don't smoke cigars. Uh-huh, exactly. she was, she, she didn't like that, yeah. So Clyde's time in Easton Prison was said to have affected him greatly, to the point where some argue that his whole life of crime was leading up to his raid on the Easton Prison that, that occurred on January 16th, 1934. This is very important in the timeline for them because Clyde's life of crime kind of comes full circle. What happens when he raids the prison is he releases a couple, like five inmates, one of them Henry Methvin, and he becomes part of the gang. And because the crime was so brazen and so over the top that you would, you know, have the gumption to break into a prison, they they basically they get the the best Texas Ranger, Frank Hamer, famed Texas Ranger, to track them and hunt them down. So that leads to his ultimate demise, and also the release of Henry Methvin and the fact that he joins the gang. Because Hen- Henry Methvin is essentially the character. CW laws, right? Yeah, that ends up betraying them. So, April 1st, 1934, they killed two patrol officers on the side of the road. It's what's known as the Grapevine Murders. Happened on Easter Day. Henry Methvin is thought to have initiated the murders because Clyde said, let's take them. And he was known for saying that, which essentially was supposed to mean, let's let's kidnap them. Because they were known for kidnapping people and, and taking them for a ride. And that's what, cops and civilians. And that's what he's thought to have wanted to have done. Henry Methvin, having not been with a gang long, mistook that for let's shoot Kill them. them. Mm-hmm. So 
There's two sides to the story. There's one eyewitness that says Bonnie and Clyde did the shooting. There's another eyewitness that says Henry Methvin did the shooting. The official record is wiped of any of Henry Methvin's involvement, and it's thought because Henry Methvin's parents actually cut a deal for him shortly after this yep. to basically get him absolved of two homicides. What we find in the movie is that they have characters that are conflations of multiple yeah. people. So yeah. we've, I and that, that's a common thing in movies. Exactly. Because no, you, you can only have characters that you can pay attention to. So May 23rd, 1934, in Bineville Parish, Louisiana, it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Like we mentioned, Henry Methvin's parents cut a deal with, with, with the authorities. And Hammer and his posse, they were stationed in the surrounding trees at 9.15 a.m. Bonnie and Clyde approached in the stolen V8 Ford. They knew it was them based on the sound of the vehicle and the high rate of speed that he was driving. He was known to drive at least 70 miles per hour wherever he went. It was thought that like if he if he had been born at a different time that he may have been a world class driver. That's why that's how good of a driver he was. Uh, but not good enough on this occasion. So apparently what whether this is true or not, Methvin's father was stationed at the side of the road with a broken down truck. He knew that Clyde would stop. Clyde and Bonnie were, were hiding out on the Methvin property. And when they pulled over, that's when Frank Hamer and his posse opened fire. So there's some dispute on how many times they got shot. The, the, the story goes that they each got shot at least 50 times. The official coroner's report had 17 wounds for Clyde, 26 for Bonnie. But there's no cohesive storyline on the killings because for various reasons, all the members of the posse told several different versions of the story. Everyone was trying to market themselves and make yeah, as much money exactly. as possible on yeah. it. Yeah. So, but essentially all you really need to know is they were shot a whole mess full of times. Yeah. And they did not survive. They did not survive, yeah. So they were ambushed. The aftermath of their death is rather fascinating because what happened was word of mouth traveled quick about what happened. And onlookers and gawkers were coming. They came almost immediately. They were like trying to like grab souvenirs off the car and, and off the clothes. Like, they basically completely and utterly uh, tampered with the, with the scene. Yeah, exactly. So... Today's standards, not that, I mean, there would be like a huge investigation, the scene would have been closed off, but there were, there were people like, so there was a story that, a couple stories that I heard, one was that someone was trying to cut off Clyde's trigger finger, and another one was that someone was trying to cut off Clyde's ear, I heard, I heard scraps of clothes, articles of clothes yeah. were getting cut off, yeah. Someone took the coins out of his pocket, so what they did was they, they so they, and Frank Hamer took the guns and the fishing tackle as a prize, as a reward hmm. for, for having captured to death with 50 bullets each so he took the BA, he took the bar uh yeah like all the they had they had several rifles i think they had up to like 17 different firearms on them or something or, or something like that they had a lot of firearms i think it was they had 17 different license plates for different states so they've been around so what happens is they tow the car and with the body still in it and they're towing the car through town. They had to take it to the coroner's office. And as they're stopping through town, the onlookers are coming out of buildings and looking at the, 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 the car on the road. And there's one story of a girl that came running out of a high school and ran up to the car, not realizing that the bodies were still in there. She came face to face with, you know, Bonnie shot up body and face. Inspired Bonnie. Oh. And, and vomited oh. on the spot. So. It's just like like you wouldn't see anything like that today. And there's so many like if you go on the internet, there's so many pictures of of there, and there's video of the car with their bodies in it. Like someone made a a, a video of it back then. Wow. And then with the funeral, the funeral was almost like they were like laid in state essentially. It was for like almost like for like a, when a politician dies or like a like a world leader, and thousands of people showed up. And they were, they were, there was like, you know, some people paying respect, some people wanted to see the, you know, the infamous Bonnie and Clyde, other more people wanted to steal, you know, souvenirs and such. And then they were, they were buried separately because Bonnie's mom was quoted as saying, Clyde had her in life, he was not going to have her in death. So that's, that's the, a quick rundown. It wasn't that quick, but. That's the history lesson on yeah. Bonnie and Clyde, Brian. The, uh. That was the, my, my rabbit hole. The thesis here, my, my rabbit hole was actually on the history of the movie Bonnie and Clyde, but I'll get to that shortly. So again, the main thing here is that I feel this film should have won Best Picture. So it essentially has to take down the 1967 film In the Heat of the Night. So what I find Which, interesting... In the Heat of the Night, I don't know if we mentioned that, but In the Heat of the Night did win Best Picture. Win Best Picture, I was going to say. For, the, for 1967 movies. What, what I find... 
one of the things that we found interesting about starting this was that starting this podcast was like you know we didn't necessarily always want to go look at the winners because there are plenty of stories of winners we found fascinating stories in the losers and that was the case here but here we still have to talk about the winner a little bit so let me tell you about well if we're going to change history there has to be there's going to be a new loser exactly right? so let so, me tell you a little bit about in the heat of the night and i'll do a quick plot synopsis then i'll do the same with bonnie and clyde so in the heat of the night comes out october 25th 1967 right now it's 96 percent certified fresh on rotten tomatoes it's directed by norman jewison the writers are sterling shipplant it's a screenplay and john ball is based on his novel star city portier rod steiger and warren oates it is it wins five academy awards it wins a uh, best picture it wins best actor for rod steiger best film editing for hal ashby best sound for samuel goldwyn studios best screenplay be- based on material from another medium and it's also still nominated for best director and uh, best sound effects. So basically, in 1966, a wealthy industrialist named Philip Colbert has moved from Chicago to Sparta, Mississippi to build a factory. One night, police officer Sam Wood discovers that Colbert has been murdered. Chief Gillespie leads the investigation. A doctor estimates that Colbert has been dead for a few hours. Wood finds a black man named Virgil Tibbs at the train station and arrests him. Gillespie quickly assumes that Tibbs is the culprit and tries to get him to confess. However, he is embarrassed to learn that Tibbs is a top homicide detective from Philadelphia. Gillespie phones Tibbs' chief, who confirms this and recommends that Tibbs should assist him. This idea does not appeal to Gillespie or Tibbs, but they reluctantly agree. It is a very odd setup for a movie, but continue, sorry. Gillespie arrests another suspect, but Tibbs clears him. The victim's widow is frustrated by the ineptitude of the local police and is impressed by Tibbs. She threatens to stop the construction of the factory unless Tibbs leads the investigation. Despite the rocky start, the two policemen begin to respect each other as they are forced to work together. Tibbs initially suspects plantation owner Endicott, a racist who publicly opposes the new factory. When Tibbs attempts to interrogate Endicott, Endicott slaps him in the face and Tibbs slaps him back. Okay, right here. So, like, <laughs> during the movie, I saw... When he when when Tibbs slaps him back and and, and we're not I'm not gonna swear but there are several adjectives that I could use to describe the racist Endicott but he starts like he essentially he demands that Gillespie do something and Gillespie doesn't and but he is so shocked I believe he's gonna start crying like a little child yeah well and I could I, for me I was shocked he smacked Tibbs like I couldn't I know I, I, I was like, like is that I'm like, darn. like how do you smack like that was very. I was, I was, you know, you know, it being the solid, I was hoping it would say. So I challenge you to a duel. And I guess we should go back to the first scene. We, we're going to talk about it. So basically. Yeah. So he he arrests the black guy because he doesn't know anything, right? He, he comes in, he takes him to the officer, he takes him to the, to the to the main office. They start interrogating him, and boom, Tim shows him his 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 uh his shield, right? Yeah. And like we talked about this off mic, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. I, I thought that this took me out of the movie as I was watching it. Well, it seems kind of like a bizarre thing not to mention to another cop when you're being arrested. I, of course, forget that this is the South. Even now, yes. we talked about this. Like, you know, if, if you're gonna, if, you, if an officer is pointing a gun at you, you still have to be very careful. And this was a scene here. Tibbs didn't say anything because the officer was being aggressive with him. Especially in 1937. Yeah. I, 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 keep, I keep putting myself now. I exactly. feel like now, yeah. if this happens, the cop would be like, boom, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like, I'm, you know, and the situation would have been resolved. So, and, and, and clearly throughout the movie, he gets chased by several mobs. They got no issue with killing an African-American guy without any just cause so police or not and yeah. to that point this is the next line in my synopsis and the cut sends a gang of hooligans after Tibbs Gillespie rescues him from a fight and tells him to leave town for his safety but Tibbs is convinced that he can solve the case he examines Colbert's body and suggests the murder happened earlier than initially thought he examines Colbert's car and deduces that Colbert was murdered elsewhere and the culprit moved the body Tibbs asked Wood to retrace his car patrol route on the night of the murder, and Gillespie joins him. When Tibbs notices that Wood has changed his route, Gillespie starts suspecting Wood, though Tibbs hints there's another reason. Gillespie discovers that Wood made a sizable deposit into his bank account on the day after the murder, 
while Purdy, a local, files charges against Wood for getting his 16-year-old sister Dolores pregnant. Gillespie arrests Wood despite Tibbs' protest, and Dolores is interrogated. Purdy is offended that a black man was present at the interrogation, and he gathers a mob to get revenge. Tibbs reveals that the murder was committed Morons. at the site of the plan factory and clears Wood. He also admits that he knew why Wood had changed his life. Dolores is an exhibitionist, and Wood had been spying on her. So this happens in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Like I, we didn't even mention it. But yeah, at, at the very beginning of the movie, before he finds the murdered body, he's driving around, creeping, and yeah. he sees a naked Dolores uh, through a window. And he's, 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 he kind of creeps by her for a little bit of kind of stuff. So obviously that's why he changed his direction. Tibbs visits a backstreet abortionist who reveals that someone paid for Dolores to have an abortion. When Dolores arrives, Tibbs follows her outside and is confronted by the murderer, Ralph. Purdy's mob tracks down Tibbs and holds him at gunpoint. He responds by proving that Ralph got Dolores pregnant. Ralph shoots Purdy dead before Tibbs disarms him. Ralph is arrested and confesses he robbed Colbert Fun Dolores abortion, but accidentally killed him. And, and well, real quick, Ralph is the racist, he's right. kind of dimwit owner of Catholic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a uh, piece of trivia, he's also the guy from Unforgiven, the uh, the racist. He plays a lot of racist people. Indeed. The owner of the tavern that puts Morgan Freeman out. And when Morgan Freeman's dead, when Morgan Freeman's uh-huh. dead, and then Unforgiven comes and shoots him, he's very mad, and he's yeah. like, "You just shot an unarmed man." He goes, "Well, he should arm himself. He's gonna decorate his saloon with my friend." Exactly. Yep, yep, yep. So he, uh, he, he's kind of, he kind of play, plays creepy. He's got a creepy look to him, creepy vibe. Does it well. And so, yeah. So this character is, he appears throughout the film here and there, as as Brian said, the owner of a, a diner that, that's somewhat, but not completely central to the plot of the film. And then he appears at the end being the murderer of the character. Yeah. The film ends with Tibbs boarding a train home as Gillespie respectfully bids him. So that's the film. It wins Best Picture. It's very good. No question about that. Let me tell you a little bit about Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, please do. Bonnie and Clyde is directed by Arthur Penn. It is written by David Duman and Robert Benton. It stars Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, and Michael J. Pollard. It's released, maybe you can answer for me, all I can find was September 1967. I have August 13th, 1967 was when it was initially released. So yeah, so there's various dates where it was it, released. It had, a, it had a real herky-jerky kind of... Run. Exactly. It started out real. It, it got panned by critics. A lot of you know negativity because of the violence. Yep. And apparently, from my understanding, the large majority, the lion's share of its box office came in 1968. Uh, it's 89% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It wins two Academy Awards. Estelle Parson wins for Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of Blanche Barrow. And Burnett Guffey wins for Best Cinematography. The film was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for Screen, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Another Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and Best Costume Design. So the story is, in the middle of the Great Depression, Clyde Barrow, Warren Beatty, and Bonnie Parker, Faye Dunaway, meet when Clyde tries to steal Bonnie's mother's car. Bonnie, who is bored by her job as a waitress, is intrigued by Clyde and decides to take up with him and become his partner in crime. They pull off holdups, but their amateur efforts, while exciting, are not very lucrative. The duo's crime spree shifts into high gear when they hook up with a dim-witted gas station attendant, C.W. Moss, Michael J. Pollard. Then with Clyde's older brother Buck, Gene Hackman, and his wife Blanche, as no parties, a preacher's daughter. The women dislike each other on first sight, like ice cubes, no Vaseline, it's on, on sight with these two. Uh, uh, and their feud only escalates from there. Shrill Blanche has nothing but disdain for Bonnie. Clyde and CW, while Gunmall Bonnie sees Blanche's flighty presence as a constant danger to the gang's well-being. Bonnie and Clyde turn from pulling small-time heists to robbing banks. Their exploits also become more violent. When CW botches a bank robbery by parallel parking the getaway car, Clyde shoots the bank manager in the face after he jumps on the slow-moving car's running board. You can see, you can't see this. 
because we're a podcast, obviously, but I was shaking my head really in, in derision when you said well, he was parallel parking. We'll, we'll revisit that later, but... The gang is pursued by law enforcement, including Texas Ranger Frank Hamer, in Denver pile, uh, whom they capture and humiliate before setting free. A raid later catches the outlaws off guard, mortally wounding Buck with a gruesome shot to his head and injuring Blanche. Bonnie, Clyde, and CW barely escape with their lives. With Blanche, sightless and in police custody, Hammer tricks her into revealing CW's name, who was up until now still only an unidentified suspect. Hammer locates Bonnie, Clyde, and CW hiding at the house of of CW's father, Ivan Moss, who thinks the couple and an ornate tattoo have corrupted his son. The elder Moss strikes a bargain with Hammer in exchange for leniency for the boy he helps to set a trap for the outlaws. When Bonnie and Clyde stop on the side of the road to help Mr. Moss fix a flat tire, the police in the bushes open fire and riddle them with bullets. Hamer and his posse then come out of hiding, looking pensively at the couple's bodies. That's the film. Yeah, so I mean, as you can tell through the rundown there, they did stay pretty close to the actual events that, like the main events with Bonnie and Clyde that uh, that I mentioned in the history. So as far as like historical accuracy goes, yeah, there's, you know, some conflation, some made up stuff, but removal of some backstory. But essentially, they, to me, they got the essence of the Bonnie and Clyde story correct. Some of, yes, to a degree. Because the thing is funny you said that because after we talked, when we talked the first time when we had our little production meeting about this, yeah, you pointed out the historical inaccuracies. Yeah, and there's plenty of those in this film oh, too. Yeah, like whole- with any movie that's based off of real life people, like you can't really get into the minutia of someone's life and, and be make accurate. a movie of it. But right? here they were. Here there were some things that were painfully like, wrong. But whatever. Like if they made a movie of our podcast, there would only be like two episodes. Well, the first and the last. <laughs> none of none of the ones. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you got to conflate things down. You can't really, you know, you can't just have, you know, the mindless babble that happens on this podcast in a movie. Correct. Right? You have that, you so, have very point. so, while I became obsessed with it because I, I enjoyed the history of Bonnie and Clyde so much, I gave the, the movie a break on it because I realized I mean, there's so much history. They did so much in such a little time that you got to boil it down to the you know, broad strokes. And it seems like they caught the essence, like you say. Like, like I said, it was pretty quick on the, on the synopsis on both films. One of the things I liked in this film, I liked the I liked the kidnapping of Gene Wilder's character. Like, there's that, that was to me that, that might have been a few very 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 good scenes in that movie, and that's that's one of them. Very, yeah, I totally agree. So basically, what I want to talk about, and and I and I really uh, Gene Wilder's from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so there was a Milwaukee connection, and maybe that's why I like the scene so much. He actually brings it up that he's, he's from, from Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. So there were, there were a couple things I really wanted to focus on in my discussion. I really wanted to focus on how critics were involved in the carrying of this movie. And I basically want to talk about the production of the story, a couple aspects of the money of the story, the cast, and lastly, I want to talk about the defense of the film. So let me get into the critics first. It was largely pain, like across the board. Yeah. It, it was it was not a very good movie. Like it, it bombed based critically and it also bombed like at the film festivals and it bombed in the theaters it just which, didn't do good which makes me wonder about that Rotten Tomatoes score being 89% yeah, now. yeah. so yeah, no, that, that just goes to show you that Rotten Tomatoes we love you Rotten Tomatoes and we love a sponsorship <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes doesn't always you know tell you how, how good a movie's gonna be there um, were however, or how or the history of the movie actually you know essentially how it plays how it, out how it, yeah. exactly there were two however uh Critics that were very important in this movie and, and play a role in my opinion as, as to why yeah. this movie survived. One is Pauline Kale and one is Roger Ebert. So Pauline Kale is essentially like the most famous movie critic that I, that I know of, other than this Siskel and Ebert. You know what I mean? Like, I, she essentially I, made her bones on this on this movie. On this like, movie. Like, so so basically, it gets panned, but she's ahead of the game on this. One of my sources is a book called Easy Riders. I'm just Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. I'm just going to read a direct quote. For sure. Kale saw right away that Warners was too hidebound to understand what they had in Bonnie and Clyde. 
It was a situation tailored to her talents. She weighed in with a 9,000 word review that the New Republic, for which she was writing at the time, refused to print. It ended up in the New Yorker. Some people's trash and some people's riches. Yeah, it's 9,000 words. I read about 6,000 words of it. I read a good chunk of it. It it was more like a a college term paper, right? So it was actually really good. It was wonderful. And this actually secured her a regular spot there. Uh, In her review, she said that Bonnie and Clyde is the most excitingly American, American movie since The Manchurian Candidate. The audience is alive to it, is what she said. But more than that, she conducted a campaign to rehabilitate the film. Yeah. Essentially, she saved the movie. So, and I would like to credit her, her with actually changing the way I thought about the movie. Because when I was watching, like, a lot of the things that I thought about the movie that negatively, she kind of explained in her in her review yeah and because i thought it it, tonally it it had large shifts from almost playing out like a comedy like i mentioned some scenes seemed like they were like pulled out of like a benny hill skit it seemed like a benny hill movie yeah with with like the banjo banjo playing and the and the driving and the chase scenes and stuff like that and and the the the, it almost seemed like they're looking for looking at it like a screwball comedy essentially i don't know much about french new wave film Essentially, that's what they would play with. They would play with shifts in tones, drastic changes, and almost to make it seem like like the pull out the comedy in in something as 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 horrific as as murder, as robbery, and stuff like that. So, in in some regard, it 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 made it more humanistic, you know, like more more relatable. Yes and no, I agree to some extent of it, but I did give it more leeway after I read her review, definitely. Roger Ebert, in his book, The Great Movie, writes, How it quickly opened and closed in the autumn of 1967, panned by critics, receiving only one unreservedly ecstatic review. Modestly, modesty be damned. It was my own, calling it a milestone in the history of American movies, a work of truth and brilliance and predicting years from now it is quite possible that Bonnie and Clyde will be seen as the definitive film of the 60s. The movie reopened, went on to become one of the astonished Jack Warner's biggest hits and won 10 Academy nominations with Oscars for supporting actress S.L. Parsons and cinematographer Burnett Guffey. Today the freshness of Bonnie and Clyde has been absorbed in countless other films and it's hard to see how radical and original it felt in 1967 just as the impact of Citizen Kane in 1941 or Breathless in 1960 may not be obvious to those raised in the shadow of its influence. When I saw it I had been a film critic for less than six months and it was the first masterpiece I had seen on the job. I felt an exhilaration beyond describing. I did not suspect how long it would be between such experiences, but at least I learned they were possible. I thought that was important. Well, my guess was five years because Godfather came out in 1972. And he so. was also a big fan of that. So there movie. you go. I mean, R.I.P. Roger Ebert, but I answered your question for <laughs> yes, you. very good. So, like, these two critics, like, you know, Roger Ebert, so Pauline Kayla's Essentially, the main critic of movies that, that I know of. And Roger, Siskel and Ebert, like, when we were kids, were the main thing. So, like, yeah. these are two of the people that I know of as true movie critics telling you that this was a great movie where nobody else was telling you it was a good movie. Like, I think that was very important. Especially, like we say, it, it premieres in September or August, bombs out. They don't market it very well. And, uh, and it comes back in, in, in February of 1968 and takes off. Yeah. So, as I said, I want to talk about the critics. I also want to talk about some of the production stuff. So, Jack Warner hates Warren Beatty. That makes... Can't stand... That makes two of us. Oh, Jackie boy. You don't really love him. Not a a fan. No, not a fan. And this is Jack Warner. If you listen to us from the beginning, or maybe you haven't, our very first episode was on the film The Jazz Singer. Correct. And Jack Warner is a figure in the making of this movie 40 years prior to the making of Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. I think that's... Outrageous, you know what I mean? Like, like the fact that he's there for forty years. Well, I mean, if you look at like, so he made Jazz Singer, 
right, or help make it. And then you move to Bonnie and Clyde. You can kind of see that there's a 40-year gap between there. You could see why he didn't realize what he had because he was he'd been making movies for so long. long. He probably thought he's like this isn't like anything like any of these other movies that I've I've made. You know, in the 40 years that I've been making that I've been in this business. So let me let me give you another excerpt from from a book. This this is from Raging Bulls. Just two quick things. The story goes, Beatty was trying to get Warner to finance Bonnie and Clyde, a movie Jack Warner had no use for. Warner didn't like Beatty, his endless phone calls, his grousing, his complaining. Not a day passed that Beatty didn't want something. So, so far as Warner was concerned, he was just another pretty face on his way to blowing a promising career on a bunch of artsy farsy films. So his first film is a his movie called Splendor in the Grass, directed by one of your favorites, Alien Kazan. Yep. Uh, not that he's one of your favorites, you just love one of his movies on the waterfront. Couple of his movies. On the, okay, especially on the waterfront. East of Eden's uh, really good too. Oh, you know that. Okay. And that movie didn't make any money. Warner and Beatty had clashed as Beatty's career faltered because Beatty had never had a hit. And he refused work and he didn't like the movies that were offered to him. So he famously refuses the role of Jack Kennedy, yeah. John F. Kennedy, in the movie PT-109. Yeah, this is based yeah. on the book where John F. Kennedy survives a plane accident. Well, it was a like boat, a boat, boat a accident. Boat, a boat, boat yeah, accident. during World War II. So he didn't want to take that film. So like, they don't like each other, period. He doesn't like them. So one day, Beatty corners Warner in his office. He falls to the floor, grabs him around the knees. Colonel, everyone called him Colonel. Colonel, I kiss your shoes, I'll lick them. He's like, yeah, yeah, get up, Warren. I've got Arthur Penn, a great script. I can make this movie for one six. If nothing else, it's a great movie. Like, get up, get up. Warren was embarrassed. He barked. What the f- This part has been deleted due to extreme obscenities. Four. It's like, not until you agree to make this movie. The answer is no. Warner thinks about this for a little bit. 1.6 million is not a lot of risk, considering that he was spending at the time. $15 million on his pet project, Camelot. He requests a letter with a budget in writing from Beatty. Warner never gets his letter, but Beatty gets his money. Warren Beatty denies that this incident ever happens, but there are a bunch of Hollywood folks that swear it most certainly happened. I, I think that's awesome. Like, I really think that that's really good. So back to some of the original things. Like I like say, I found that part funny. I also want to talk a little bit just about the finance of this movie because of how it panned and how it bombed out. Sure. So first... Back to one thing about the historical inaccuracies, which I did find funny about this movie. Beatty was not sure that he wanted to star in the film. The historical Clyde was very much a runt, and he imagined Bob Dylan in the role. Yeah, it, uh, so to me, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if it says more about who I am as a human being as opposed to as who Warren Beatty is, because I don't really know him. I just know him based on how he looks. He's also got, he's all, he's always got this like fecal matter eaten grin on his face. <laughs> I have a hard, nice, and, and nice. I think that played well into, well yeah, I think that played into how I felt the movie kind of moved as a comedy, just because his smile was just so, like, he's, he's a very handsome man, right? He right. doesn't look like the kind of guy that would resort to a life of crime, mm-hmm. and his smile was just so goofy. It just kind of, di- like, I mean, maybe that's how they thought he could have been a good criminal, because it was a disarming smile, but I didn't feel like he was a threat. He, he like there was no kind of villainy in him, mm-hmm. just because he always flashed that goofy grin. He didn't really seem to turn into the character until like the second half of the movie. There's a part where they're driving away after a shootout, and he's got he's all his brother Buck just got shot in the head, and uh, they, like everything's going awry, and yep. he's got he's all sweaty and he's got this serious looking look on his face. To me, at that point, he kind of turned into Clyde, oh, yeah. uh, the historical Clyde. But up until that point, he just kind of seemed like a a pretty boy who wasn't a lover boy because he was. Did we talk about the impotent? We did in, in the but, movie. They're, they're in the movie. The character is impotent. But yeah. yeah. But anyhow, well, I I have more on that yeah. later. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about. So real quick, the money, right? Beatty learns that the only way to control film is to produce it, so he decides to produce this movie. He sets a precedent as this hasn't been done before in 19, up until 1967. Uh, Beatty strikes up a deal with Walter McEwen, the production head at Warner's. McEwen gave Beatty $200,000 for the film and that Beatty would have a percentage for the gross. 
40% deal. Uh, this deal ends up being catastrophic for, for Warner's. But at the time, it wasn't. The movie made, I think, what, $70 million? I think Something so. Like but when it first dropped, it made nothing. Yeah. Never, like, so they thought it was a perfect deal for them because they, you know, they would never lose anything. The film takes off in Europe. Like, it's, it's a revelation because, again, it's essentially a French movie. And like, yeah. this is the, the height of French film sure. at this time. And furthermore, the, the, the costume design... Berets become the fashion rage in all of Europe when this film comes out. So also they're making a lot more money than they're supposed to be making on this money. He like this essentially sets Warren Beatty up as a power player in Hollywood for the next fifty years. Sure. Is what this deal does, you know, it's impressive. The one thing, the one more, one more, two more things I want to talk about. I thought the cast in this movie was phenomenal. It's like one, it's 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 a unique cast and it's like an ensemble piece, and it's revolutionary in the sense that. The way that it was described was that at this time, the way casting directors dealt with it was that they were basically sent a catalog of very similar looking people mm-hmm. and they just picked A, B, A, B, and C, D and then they'd get them and if they worked, they'd hire them. If they didn't, they, they would move on. This film was different as like they were kind of going gorilla trying to save money. Warren Beatty had already worked in theater, so he had some people in mind. They actually got people directly from New York and not from Los Angeles so yeah. these were some real actors. And uh, they were essentially normal-looking people, if you will. Sure. You know, like, like, in fact, one of the lines in this book is that they looked like regular people as opposed to being Hollywood I actors. I mean, Gene Hackman is a great actor, so is Gene Wilder, but they're not known for their... Good looks. They're, they're, not, they're, looks. Not they're, they're known for their, their how they can, you know, disappear into a character. Exactly. And so, like, the fact that she... The fact that, that the, the casting director was a lady named Marion Dotry, she, uh, she found all of these people on Broadway and brought them to Hollywood for this film, it ends up, essentially, these these people, Gene Wilder and Gene Hackman, Faye Dunaway, essentially are Hollywood power players for the next 30 years. They're in a bunch of movies that everybody sees, yeah. really all the 70s and part of the 80s and into the 90s. Like, it was revolutionary the way they did that. Like, she, it was she, was my, she, she, Dunaway, Faye Dunaway, like, was my nightmare through, like, the 80s because she was Mommy Dearest. No yeah. more wire hangers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no more wire hangers ever. I was afraid that I was going to get beaten by a wire hanger like constantly. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying anything bad about my parents, but like that was like my nightmare. Right. Like all, like my, but one of my parents would lose it and beat the hell out of me <laughs> with a wire hanger. With a wire hanger, and that was it. And I want to talk about the influence of this movie, but we can get that a little bit later. But that, that's basically. The major things that I want to speak about this movie, as I say, I didn't do as much research on In the Heat of the Night because it already won. Like, if I wanted to, you can you can look it up yourself. I wanted to look at Bonnie and Clyde, and I, I found like the the movie excellent. And I found the making, the history of the making of the movie was fascinating. I really thought it was something that was fun to delve into, and I advise people to both watch the movie and do some research on this film. It's really good. Yeah, well, one thing I wanted to talk about in the Heat of the Night though was Rod Steiger's nice. performance. I thought he was just he was. Like Marlon Brando esque in that in that movie, he won the, he was, he won the award. Like he, and he, I thought he, he, was, he, was, good, he was great. No question. I mean, granted, you know, like we were talking, he he played a despicable character and a real stupid one because, like, pretty much anyone who was brought into his office, he was like, "All right, you must have done it. You must have done that. You must have done that motto. So no, let's all let's throw him in jail. Exactly. Uh, that's like that's a wrap, boys. Yeah. But uh, so like he was kind of dimwitted, but he knew his limitations, right? And I thought he was a well-written character in regards to you know he knew he wasn't the brightest bulb, right? And he he knew that he needed uh, Tibbs help, and he was kind of. He didn't want to, you know, give up his personal pride as a as a white man in in the South, but he kind of he kind of did take a backseat to Tibbs, and like we mentioned, like with 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 an actor, he can only you know perform the role that he's hired to do. So he had Steger had a pretty despicable character to play, but he he did it well, and he he basically stole every scene that he was in. Mm-hmm. And the, the best scene for me and what made me realize that I was going to be watching a really powerful performance was the scene where he finds out that Tibbs is a police officer <laughs> and he looks at he looks at the badge and he's like, yeah, oh, yeah. That was like something Pacino would do, right? <laughs> so it, I, I thought that was brilliant. I thought a lot of it. He just seemed he seemed better than the, the actual movie Film, it's, I got you. itself. You know, the the. Like I mentioned, the the plot felt like it was just something out of like Law and Order, which they didn't have back then. But it 
it seemed like it could be like a Law and Order episode yeah. nowadays. But Sidney Poitier was excellent. Like the thing about that movie, he didn't right? have like they 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 set him up poorly. Like you know, with uh, how they introduce his character. Yep. But I still think he was a great. He still did a good job. He, like he's always good. As 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 his character started moving on, it, it got better and better. Yep. But they gave him a. I think they gave him a poor intro. Agreed. And that kind of hurt his character because he had to be so docile at first for a yeah. while. It was yeah. like well, what I found. This is what I found really good about it. Right at the end of the day, this movie, you know, is about. Telling you that you shouldn't be a racist. We get that. Racism is terrible. We, we, we really get that. Like, everybody understands that. And I found the film got good in the sense, in the two places, right? Like, Rod Steiger, at the end of the day, is still a racist jerk. But yeah. at the very least, he, he has respect for another human being that's not white, right? Sure. Like that That's good. Like, that, that in of itself is good. And whereas, you know, they even joke about Sidney Poitier being a racist because he didn't want to work with the white officer. Like, yeah. like I thought that was kind of super clever how they did that. At the end of the day, both these men didn't want to work together, but they got to respecting each other enough that they were able to work together. Yeah. I found Sidney Portier's drive to solve the crime excellent, and I found Rod Steiger's caring of Sid Portier to get him out of there so he doesn't get killed also yeah. to be telling of the movie. Like, there, it was good. You know, yeah. that, was, that was solid. He wanted to get him out of there, but he also... Like he egged him on a couple times, you know. He's like, "You're gonna let, you're gonna let, you know, all these white people, like, you know, one up you." He's like, "Why don't, why don't you solve this crime and you know, show that you're better?" Than, Agreed. Oh. But towards the end, that wasn't doing. Yeah. It. Towards the end, yeah, he was yeah, protecting yeah. them. Like he was trying because, yeah. like, yeah, he saved them from the mob. Like you know, he's trying true, to get yeah. them out of there. He's like you should get out of here. Like it doesn't matter. Like you yeah. know, like, you're not. And I here. and I think in a regard in regard, he was trying to save his own skin in 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 that because yeah, because I suppose you're right. He. Uh, he knew he was under pressure because he had to solve his crime because there were so many economic uh, implications for their town if he didn't. So he was moving. He was working under a lot of different, like, uh, like getting pulled in a whole bunch of different directions. And I thought he did a great job portraying, you know, the angst of a character like that, and just he was just, just the way he moved and like his his demeanor. Like I said, like it seemed like straight out of the, like, you know. The Brando playbook. I mean, they were, he was good, and so so I, I give you, I give you that. I think that Steiger's performance was was outstanding. He won it. He he earned it. Yeah. I thought Sidney Poitier's was pretty good. Uh, in the other two films, I really thought that Gene Hackman was excellent, and we talked this off mic. Gene Wilder was a scene stealer in oh, yeah. in, in Bonnie Light. He did so good. I thought that, those that were really really good performances. Yeah. And the fact that both Gene Hackman and Marcus Pollard, C.W. Moss, were nominated for Best Supporting Actor tells you like how good they were like you know how, how, how these actors really just came they were really honed in on the craft of acting and did a good job yeah so like that was interesting so as i say when i, when I looked at in the heat of the night it, it's, it's basically a movie telling you shouldn't be racist and it shows like this double development of both guys and how they work together and that's good i thought that bonnie and clyde was more complex but the fundamental part of bonnie and clyde is that it's young people doing what they want telling old people where to go or basically it's our time now. Deal with it. And it's young people dealing with the ramifications of their decision. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this, like, when we listened to, when we, we watched our second or third episode when we did Metallica, and being, like, a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old and hearing one for the first time, how important that must have been. That's where I kind of put myself when I was watching Bonnie and Clyde and thinking to myself, like, being an 18, 19, 20-year-old and seeing this for the first time, how it must have been mind-blowing. You know, because it, it was completely different than anything they did. Yeah. I guess the best way that I liked the way that it was described was that it was a new Hollywood. It was a new Hollywood movie. You know, like a, a new film, or late seventy style movie. But the last movie that had the backing of the studio. So it's basically a movie that moves forward while all at the same time looking back as it's going forward. Like, and you can kind of see that in the movie. Like, and that's why, like. It has some elements where it's just like, what am I watching? This is kind of ridiculous. You know what I mean? Or like, but but that's where I thought it was so much more creative and such and so much more like risk taking than what was this movie in the Heat of the Night. And I liked in the Heat of the Night. Don't get yeah. me wrong, but that's what I found as I was watching, uh, as I was, I was paying attention to to Bonnie and the Cl- Bonnie so, Clyde. So I guess a way that I would I would uh, I would describe it is is like when you're looking at it, let's put it in sports vernacular, right? So let's say you're you have a decision between drafting a a four-year senior who scored 20 points a game, 20 points a, se- a game every year, 
and you know he's a surefire all-star. Mm. Or you got a guy who's a project who has the potential to be, you know, uh, a, a superstar. Mm. Like who would you? Who do you draft? Right? Mm-hmm. Who do you take? So and but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, and his game's a little uneven with the potential superstar. But you know this four-year guy, very bland, very bland, very steady. But you know, you what, know you're what you're going to get, get from get. him. Yep. And That's you know he's going to have a couple, you know, star performances here and there. But it, it's not going to be every night. Right. That's how I looked at these two movies. Like way, so, right. with in the heat of the night. It was rather even. I mean, the the the, in, the beginning was a little bumpy. It evened out. There was no like peaks or valleys with it. Mm. To me, Rod Steiger carried the movie, and it it, it took him and Sydney. They he took they took a, a pretty bland movie and and put it over the top. I agree. No, I agree. With, I agree with, with with Bonnie and Clyde, there was to me there was so much potential in this movie. And it, it reached it and that and beyond in the second half. So it, it peaked. But it started out so choppy to me. Hmm. And like I said, I thought it was it felt like I was watching a comedy at first. first. And yep, and, and, and as as attested in the Pauline Kale review, I wasn't the only one that thought that. So the unevenness of the movie kinda detracts for me and there's a couple other things. So I guess the question now is where do we lay on whether or not, you know... The bottom line I'm asking you is do you think that In the Heat of the Night is better than Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah, so so think, I just want to go over like some of the things that I really, really liked about Bonnie and Clyde before I make my decision. I thought the intro to the movie was phenomenal. And with the pictures and then the names of the actors and then they would go red. Mm-hmm. Like, and that was brilliant and it was, it was quiet. And I thought it reflected that ultimate ending of the movie like perfectly like it bookended the movie just like brilliantly so you start out with this real quiet poignant opening that has an element of danger to it right because you see the names go red and you're like oh wow something something's gonna happen here and then the ending where after they get shot and the posse's uh, you know approaching the vehicle and you're seeing it from the point of view of the vehicle and you see the posse and they're kind of looking in and they're not quite sure because they know that these are very dangerous people, and they, they seem kind of apprehensive, and then all of a sudden it just cuts to black, and you know it's over. Mm-hmm. I thought those two bookends were brilliant. So with the intro, it set itself up to be very serious with that intro. And then you kind of get a little you know, playful back and forth with Bonnie and Clyde, and then some hijinks. French New Wave. Yeah, <laughs> trying, to, trying to rob a bank when there's no money in the bank, and, mm-hmm. and you know, just some... They, they kind of came off as goofs and then it started then it got to the serious part right around the time where that uh, shootout was where when Buck got, got shot in the head to me it's almost like two different movies the first like 40 minutes to an hour and the second you know 40 minutes to an hour and just beyond brilliant I think so um, and I mentioned that I didn't really like Warren Beatty um, that probably like I said it probably has more to do with me than him he's just some you know some people the actors you just don't respond to I didn't respond to him and I think the problem was when I watched this movie too is when I first watched it I knew a whole bunch about the real Bonnie and Clyde and I kept thinking well that's not right that's not right oh you got that wrong oh that's not right so I was kind of like like just like real nitpicky deep diving too much yeah it took me the second viewing which I watched actually like almost finished minutes before we started recording to really appreciate it and I did take the perspective that you mentioned where I tried to put myself in a time and place where everything that I knew about movies after you know forever I tried to erase from my brain and realize that like the violence in this movie set up all these other movies that I love and I was just like I was just watching the town on TV today for five minutes before my son walked into the room and I immediately turned it off but you know like there, like in the five minutes that I watched there was a huge like shootout in the in, in like a downtown area like you you wouldn't get to that point if you didn't have Bonnie and Clyde so I gotta give him a lot of credit there are some lot logic issues we met I, we talked about it briefly with the parallel parking bit yeah, yeah, yeah. so that 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 essentially directly leads to where the movie starts taking a serious turn like really starts taking a serious turn and, and gets out of the slapsticky stuff for real is when Clyde kills that bank manager who jumps onto the car because CW decided that you know rather than just sit you know double parked we parallel park this mug 
and 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 and, and, and wait for him, and, uh, and they couldn't break out. It was just so dumb. It was so it was, dumb. Yeah, he was like, like he I was, was like, like so happy when he saw the pipe. I know those open up. Like, yeah. So yeah, it, uh, that took me out of it I because I'm like, how do you like? So essentially, Clyde's murderous rampage started because of parallel parking issues. Like, parallel parking issues. Yeah, exactly. Like so that to me that. It just seems stupid, right? Like it just seems so trivial. Like, yeah. and he gets pissed at it when they're in the movie theater, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and Bonnie's trying to watch the movie. Yeah, and she's like, "If you're gonna argue about this, go outside." Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. that kind of like you know alludes to her love of film. So that that kind of bothered me, and then the the whole like uh, the, the impotence thing with Clyde. So I'm not. I know they initially wanted a threesome in the movie, right? And then they they decided not to do that for various reasons, and Correct. they 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 settled on Clyde being impotent, yep. and he essentially has to show his manliness or his his virility through robbing banks or, or through his life of crime, and that kind of you know propels him into this life essentially because he can't you know make love to to Bonnie. In the conventional way, he has to do it through his his acts of violence. But no, he doesn't. Well, wait, I'm sorry. And well, to me, it kind of mirrors the actual the the real Clyde, because the real Clyde, it's thought that he possibly was propelled to this life of crime because of the Such violence assault, yeah. that occurred occurred to him in, in Eastern Prison, and ultimately led to his demise. So, I, to me, if if that was what they did, that I I'm okay with. But it doesn't seem like that's what they did. It seems like they just had to add it in because they couldn't do the threesome. And there's a very Fight Clubby moment to me in this. So you know, I don't know. We've we talked about the movie Fight Club. I have a beef with the ending because he essentially cures his mental illness by shooting himself in the head, which is not in any kind of. How you fix it? I think it's the DSM five. I don't believe that's in there. Shooting yourself in the head and. Not that I know a lot about male impotency, but I did look into it a little bit, and I did not quite see a, uh, poetry being a, uh, a a cure for 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 uh, impotency. So I make jest of that, but you know, it just it seemed it seemed like they used some kind of movie convention to wrap up a a real medical condition quickly, like they did in Fight Club, which is kind of silly. So where do I stand on the movie? While both movies had major flaws, mostly in logic and plot. Uh, overall, they are both very good films, worthy of being Oscar winners. But that being said, I'm I'm convinced that history should not be changed with this. In the heat of the night, like I said, it's a more even picture. It seems more Oscar Beatty. So to me, and, and, and it's a movie that still resonates 50 years later with, you know, the current climate that we're in. Racial profiling is still, you know, rampant in society. So... I was thinking, should a movie that influenced so many others be held at such a high standard that it, you know, we need to give it the Oscar? I don't think it needs to be. I think you can have something that's severely flawed that still influences other movies greatly and brings other movies to even higher heights than a base material. So that's where I'm going to stand on this. I am not giving it an alternative history. Very good. Well, let me let me get my breakdown then. Well, there's a couple things, right? Like the things that I liked about it, like I like, I guess I like them both an awful lot. And the question is, do I like this movie more than I like In the Heat of the Night? And one of the things that I end up not liking about In the Heat of the Night, and it, it, it's it, it, this is why for me it's it's a debate and why I think that Bonnie and Clyde's gonna win. But one of the things that bothered me in, in the Heat of the Night, and we talk about this regularly, which is why I'm surprised In the Heat of the Night stayed so high for you. They wrap that movie up so perfectly and in a bowl for you. Like, that's garbage. All this Man. junk they were doing, you know, was so serious and it was so real. At the very end, it's this chunk dude who's made three appearances in the film. He's the murderer, what? and they kill him yeah. just like that. <laughs> nah, man, that's some nine two zero garbage. That, you and that, I alluded to that. Like yeah. that. I alluded to that when I said it basically had the plot of a Law and Order. But, but uh, they, they wrapped it up. Even Law and Order, at least the, the way they end them makes sense in Law and Order. Here, like yeah. I say, dude, it's basically this guy that was like, you know, there's no even like way to hint that he's the guy. Like at least in other like, there's clever ways to do it that he could be a dude. You, there's no giveaway of it at all. It's just some random dude who did it, and like they could have figured it out. And he gets no justice. He just gets murked. So it's like 
you get Virgil Tubbs super obsessed to bring this thing to an end, and you don't actually get it resolved. He just gets murdered. That bothered me that they were able to resolve it that quickly, you know? And, like, at the end of the day, what's learned? You know, like, Steiger's still racist. Like, Virgil, you know, like, like Tubbs not never coming back to Mississippi again. It's not like he's ever, like, welcoming home. Like, that really bugged well, me. If you end. if you watched any of the TV show in the heat of the night, he does he goes return, I guess, to so Sparta, Mississippi. So, you've been proven wrong, my friend. <laughs> Anyhow, but no, I understand. Yeah, uh, and I like and the thing that uneven like, endings. Some definitely. of the things that I liked a lot in in in, in Bonnie and Clyde, like their first major robbery, is a failure. Like everything they do is essentially doomed to failure. And it's like it leads that way. Like it's it, for me, it's just concise, 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 moving towards that. You know what I mean? Like sure, it's supposed to be wonderful, and I I, I didn't get in depth with the, that impotent team like you're talking about it, but like. The sex and violence in this film are essentially hinted at throughout the entire film. Like, like either because they couldn't have sex when they tried, and or by all these various ambushes that just missed out, or were like the result didn't come out the way it was supposed to be. Until the very end, where they actually have there are some there are some really good transitions in this film, and they do that French New Wave stuff excellently. There's a really brilliant transition here where she's reading her poem when they're all jacked up. They've just survived. They're all bloody. They're all screwed up. Mm-hmm. They're 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 remending each other. They're they're recovering. She's reading the poem, and then all of a sudden the poem's in the newspaper, and they're out in the sun, and they're bright and they're fresh again. And it was just real clever how the transition went, and all of a sudden they could have sex. And then a couple minutes later, the big ambush that murders them. So like basically, even that was for me done right because it's like hinting, hinting, hinting throughout the whole movie for both this violence and the sex, and it happens in the last ten minutes. And then the movie's essentially over. You know what I mean? Like, like for me, I just thought it was... Like I say, it took more risks and ended up being a lot clearer. And I think that I go opposite with you a little bit in the sense that I do think that because it has that influence, we should give it more credit than what it gets. Because for me, we've talked about off mic, and many people who know me know that I think True Romance is one of the greatest movies of all time. It's I like agree. a top five movie of yeah. all time. And True Romance is based on Terrence Malick's The Bad Badlands. Man. If you don't have Bonnie and Clyde, you don't have The Godfather, you, like, the, the, like the scene where, where, with, the, with the headshot, you don't have The Departed, all the constant ambush and killing innocent people, you don't have movies like Natural Born Killers, which essentially is Bonnie and Clyde, you don't have all these movies that essentially, just like you said, are what everybody cares about. You know, like, maybe something com- comes along different and influences, but this was the influential movie. Like... And so, just thinking about that, and then just when I watched them head to head, I just liked Bonnie and Clyde more. Like, yeah. period. Like, all right. So for me, at the end of the day, I do give Bonnie and Clyde the Oscar for 1967's Best Picture. Like, I think that they get the alternative history. Yeah, starring Bob Dylan, right? Star- yeah. <laughs> take Bo- take take Warren Beatty out of there. Maybe I can agree with you. <laughs> but not 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 on this one. I'm sorry. So there you have it. That's the alternative history. That's our rundown of Bonnie and Clyde. Let us know what you think, if we're uh, full of manure or if our voices make Full of <laughs> Warren Beatty's fecal matter-eating grin. Let us know, let us know. So, Alternative History Podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you got any ideas for topics, because we're running out. No. We have, kidding. We, we have, have plenty, plenty of topics. We have plenty. We, we actually do a lot of pre-production on this show. You may not be able to tell. But we do. But we do like opinions and ideas from our yes. fans. In fact, we have a couple episodes coming up that are based on what people have said. So if you guys have some suggestions, let us know. We'll try to work on it. Definitely. You can find us at Twitter at, at @althistorypc. We are on iTunes. We are on Google Play, Potable, and Stitcher. Please subscribe. Please follow. Please like. Please leave comments. It really helps us a lot. Yes. As usual, thank you guys so much for listening. We know you could be doing other stuff. Thank you. Have a good day.